beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Exodus 4 ended on on a high note. The people have heard there of the, the care and concern of the Lord, and they humbly bow down and worship Him. They have seen that he knows and understands their suffering. And that's a beautiful thing indeed when God's people understand that the Lord cares for his people. They respond in worship. They fall down on their knees before the Lord. Indeed, it's beautiful. But things don't stay that way for long. Like many difficult situations in life, It gets much worse for the Israelites before it gets better. And by the time we we come to our text, Exodus chapter 5, God's people are discouraged. Discouraged by the trials of life. Discouraged by the suffering that they are enduring. And so discouraged are they that they can no longer see the grace of their God. Perhaps you've been there. Perhaps life has thrown so many curveballs, there has been so many struggles and trials that it comes to a point that you become so discouraged that you can hardly see the grace of God at work in your life. But as we go through our text this afternoon, we will see that even though God's people may at times be very discouraged, in the end we are encouraged to look to the God of grace and look to the grace that he does show to his discouraged people. And so I proclaim the gospel this afternoon to you as follows God's grace comes to his discouraged people and leader. We'll see three things the devil's attack, the people's dismay, and then the Lord's grace. Now our text begins with Moses and Aaron making a request to Pharaoh on behalf of the Lord. And the Lord's request is very clear and very simple to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, in verse 1, The God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. I will get to that request, a feast in the wilderness, in just a moment. But here it's not the request that needs our primary attention, but the one who is making the request. The Lord. The Lord, not Moses, not Aaron, is commanding Pharaoh to do something. And why is this important? It's important because we find here an issue of authority. Who's in charge? Who gets to tell who what to do? God or Pharaoh? Who has more power? And here the Lord is claiming that he has that authority, that he can command Pharaoh what to do. Pharaoh, like God's people, had done at the end of Exodus 4. They, he too must bow down and worship before the Lord. But Pharaoh refuses. In verse 2, he does not acknowledge God's authority. Instead, there he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. In the eyes of Pharaoh, he was God. And that was not an unlikely thing. If you know anything about Egyptian culture, pharaohs were were considered gods. And so Pharaoh, as a god, is saying, no, I am not accountable to anyone. I am not accountable to the God of the Hebrews. He cannot tell me what to do, and I will not let him 
tell me what to do. And in fact, even though Pharaoh says he doesn't know the Lord, which may in many ways have been true, the one thing he did know for certain about the Lord was this, that that God of the Hebrews was powerless. And proof was very clear for him. For this God, Yahweh, the Lord, had let his people live in slavery under Pharaoh's power for so long, only a powerless God would do that for his people. And so Pharaoh's answer to the Lord's request is no, you can't tell me what to do. If the Hebrews have any God, it's me, not you. And here we see then, and here's what we need to see is that this is a clash not just between Moses and Pharaoh, not just between two earthly people and rulers. This is a clash between God and Pharaoh. Pharaoh is an anti-God figure. He is doing the devil's work, you could say. He is an agent of Satan sent to destroy God and his people. He is opposing God himself, rejecting God's authority and power. Unless soon enough, Pharaoh will be put in his place. Soon enough, the Lord will, will show him that will, will let him know who he is. And soon enough, Pharaoh will even submit to the Lord. Not willingly, but out of necessity, he will. In any case, in verse 3, Moses elaborates and explains the Lord's request further. He is requesting that, that the people of God go on a three-day festival in which the people go and worship the Lord by offering sacrifices to him. Sounds great. Three days of relief from slavery. Three days of relief from building bricks. And yet something is wrong here. Because this wasn't the plan. You remember that the plan, the original plan, was a complete exodus. Not just a three-day journey relief into the desert. That's what the Lord had promised to Abraham so long ago. That he would redeem his people, that he would bring them to the land of Canaan. But now the Lord is just requesting a three-day journey, worship service in the desert. So what's going on here? What is the Lord doing? Is he being sneaky, perhaps? Maybe he's using this festival as a guise, an easy way for his people to escape, get them out of Egypt for a three-day festival, and then boom, they can go and escape. Or has the Lord changed his mind about the whole Exodus plan? See, the Lord is thinking about it. He thinks, wow, this is quite a task to redeem all of these people. That's going to be a lot of work for me. So you know what? I'll just give them a three-day festival And we'll call it even, fair is fair. But no, that that is not at all what the Lord is doing here. The Lord is making this request to Pharaoh in order to test him. Remember, it's a clash between Pharaoh and the Lord. The Lord here is giving Pharaoh a very reasonable request and seeing how he will respond. Will, Will Pharaoh harden his heart or will he acquiesce to the true God? And this was a very reasonable request, that three-day journey into the desert. After all, the Israelites had been working for, had been worked to the ground for over 40 years, day in and day out. It's hard for us to imagine. They, they received no Sabbath rest and no holidays, no vacation time with their families. All the people were doing was work, work, and more work. 
And so then a three-day festival after all of this at work for 40-plus years, that is certainly a reasonable thing to ask of Pharaoh, their employer. But no, Pharaoh's not their employer. He's their slave driver. And so in verses 4 and 5, Pharaoh refuses and claims that this is a deliberate ploy on the part of Moses and Aaron to keep the people from doing their work. And that seems to give Pharaoh an idea. He's going to show Moses and Aaron, he's going to show the Lord that he is in charge, that he is the boss, that he is the God of the Hebrews. Bricks without straw. That's his plan. That's his way of exercising his God-like power over the people of the true God. And so in verses 4, or in verses 6 and following, we find that plan explained in detail. Prior to this, Pharaoh, in his great and abundant kindness, if we could even call it that, supplied the Israelites with straw for making their bricks. But not anymore. Effective immediately, the straw is taken away. Now, straw, I'm told, was was an important material for making bricks in those days. It, It apparently released acids into the clay and made it easier for them to mold and shape the bricks. But in any case, now the Israelites had to find their own straw or anything that could resemble or do the same thing as it. But not only that, the quota, the amount of bricks that Pharaoh required of them to make each day would not be reduced. If we think about this, this is madness. This is insanity. How could they possibly be expected to fulfill such a task? I don't know if there's any dairy farmers among you. But it's like asking a dairy farmer, uh, it's like a dairy farmer asking his hired hand to milk all the cows by hand and to do it in the same amount of time. It's like a framer taking away the, the nail gun of a hired man's hand and telling him to build the house in the exact same amount of time. This is, this is impossible. This cannot be done. So why does Pharaoh do this? Or better, why does the devil do this? What is the devil trying to do in all of this through Pharaoh? Well, it's to fill God's people with dismay. It was to crush the the offspring of the woman, to crush God's people. Something that that is spoken about in Genesis 3. There would be a, a struggle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And here Pharaoh is, asked, is acting as a seed of the serpent, doing everything he can to destroy God's people. And so he's turning them against each other. He's attempting to do that. He's attempting to, to turn them away from the Lord. He wants to drive a wedge between God's people and their leaders and between God and his people as well. And you can imagine As the people are searching high and low, as they they scatter throughout Egypt looking for straw-like material. It's not hard to imagine the devil whispering in their ears, is it not? Where is your God now? Why is he still doing nothing? It's been over 40 years and it's only getting worse for you. He doesn't care about you. And Moses, that, that old geezer, he was old, he was 80 years old. He's out of touch with reality. He wants you to suffer too. It's his fault that you have no straw. Serve Pharaoh. Serve me. You'll get your straw back. You'll get your life back. 
These are the same kind of lies that the, de- that the devil tries to whisper into our own ears at times as well. When we are overcome by sorrow and affliction. When the struggles of work and the pain of death is too much. When we come face to face with the destructiveness of our own sin and disobedience. The devil is always near. Whispering half-truths and outright lies to us. God doesn't see your pain. He wants you to suffer. He's glad your work is meaningless. He's delighted to see that you're wallowing in the destructiveness of your own sin. Come, serve me. Come, life will be better with me. We need to see through all of this. Living under the devil's grip is never a life worth living. Even if the Israelites got their straw back, what if? It doesn't matter because they are still in slavery. They're still making bricks for Pharaoh day in and day out. That's going back to a life with straw for, for making bricks is still slavery. And yet even though we realize that the devil, devil tells lies, whispers them to us, oftentimes he does convince. He sometimes makes life in his kingdom look like green pasture and quiet waters. He leads us to believe that a life of sin is is much better than a life of service to God. He leads us to believe that our suffering and our sorrow is the work of God and proof that God has turned his fatherly love away from us. What works for us at times worked very well in our text with the Israelites. In the verses 15 and 16, the foreman of God's people they, they appeal to Pharaoh. They want to know why he's treating his servants in this most terrible way. Why he is beating them and demanding that they, they maintain their quota. And Pharaoh's ready for them to come, of course. He's expecting them to come. Pharaoh, or the foreman, didn't think it was their fault. But Pharaoh, Pharaoh does. So what he when the, when the foremen come to him and explain, you know, why are you doing this to us? Then, then Pharaoh says to them in verse 17, you are idle or, or lazy as some translations have it. You are idle. You are idle. Now, if that's all that Pharaoh had said and the foreman left then, well, then they, they would have been convinced that, that Pharaoh was a lunatic that he was indeed behind all of this, that it was his fault and that he was a harsh dictator and ruler. But then Pharaoh, Pharaoh adds something to back up his claim to prove that they are idle and lazy. And he says, that is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. And that was an intentional allusion back to the Lord's request made by Moses and Aaron at the beginning of chapter 5. Without using Moses and Aaron's name, Pharaoh is implicating them. He's saying, don't, don't come to me. Go after Moses. Go after Aaron. Go after the Lord your God. They are the ones who started this whole thing. It's not me that's the problem. It's them. Go after them. The foremen leave. Moses and Aaron had been waiting for the, fair, for the foreman to come back. In all likelihood, they had even encouraged the foreman to go to Pharaoh and, and try to, to make their case before him. But it seems to all have backfired. 
For when the foremen come back, they say to Moses and Aaron, verse 21, they say to him, the Lord look on you and judge you because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The foremen have concluded that it's Moses and Aaron's fault. That it's the leaders of God's people's fault. They are the ones to blame. It's no longer Pharaoh's fault. He's out of the picture now. He's clear of blame. Now it's Moses and Aaron. This sometimes happens in the church today as well. Sad as it is. When God's people are discouraged and broken by sin. They're often looking for someone to blame. And so they will place that blame on the ones they care for most. Their families, their friends, and yes, sometimes even their spiritual leaders and shepherds. When this happens, Satan smiles. For he knows that once he turns God's people against their leaders, it's just one step away from turning them against the Lord. This sad turn of events leaves Moses deeply discouraged. But more than that, and much worse than that, is that he now joins in the blame-shifting Imagine Moses being being blamed for all of this and him thinking to himself, it's not my fault. He'd done everything that he can. He'd left Midian. He'd gone to, to rescue his people. He'd done exactly what the Lord had told him. Sure, he, has, he had hesitated at the burning bush, but now he had come in obedience to the Lord. And he had done exactly what the Lord had said. And so then... If the Lord had had told him to do all this, if the Lord was behind all this, well, then it must be his fault. It's exactly the conclusion that Moses comes to. He says something to the Lord in verse 22 and 23 that, that no one should ever, ever say to the Lord. Oh, Lord, why have you, why have you done evil to this people? Imagine that accusing God, the holy and righteous God. The God that he had witnessed his holiness at at the burning bush. He is now, rather than falling on his face in worship, he is pointing his finger at him. You have done evil. Why did you ever send me, he goes on. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you, you have not delivered your people at all. We see how far things have gone. It was Pharaoh's fault. He was primarily to blame. But now suddenly it's the Lord's fault. Sounds like the Garden of Eden all over again, doesn't it? Remember Adam, the woman you put here with me. This is something we sometimes do as well. We sometimes blame the Lord. Though maybe not as deliberately, though not as... as, as The way that Moses does in our text. And yet sometimes when we see all the the suffering and the the carelessness and and, and the destructiveness in this world. Sometimes we think. Sometimes we think who is behind all this. There's that accident of those hockey players a number of weeks ago. You see so much life destroyed. And then you see more recently the, the van that comes and, and drives on the sidewalks and destroys so many lives. 
And sometimes when we see that, we can, we can think in our minds, God, why did you do this? God, why did, why did you do this? Or we see the damage of our own sin and in our families and relationships, and we, we think, Lord, why have you brought this trouble upon me? But how very short-sighted of Moses. How very short-sighted of us. The Lord made very clear to Moses, even before he arrived in Egypt, that things would not be easy. He made it very clear that Pharaoh would dig in his heels. He would not let his people go, the Lord told him at the burning bush. Pharaoh would not let God's people go until something drastic would happen, until the death of Pharaoh's firstborn son. And God has also made clear to us, made clear to Adam in the beginning that that the results of disobedience would lead to sin and destructiveness and death throughout this world. And so none of it, none of the suffering, none of the death, though in many ways it is sad and terrifying, none of it is God's fault. He is not the author. He is not the one to blame for all of this. It is we sinful people who turned our backs on the Lord that are to blame. We disobeyed God in the first place, and this is the result. But how's God going to react to all of this? To this blaming? It's his fault. You might expect him to harshly reprimand Moses, and he would have had every right to do so. How could you be so dull, Moses? How could you possibly dare to accuse me? Get out of my sight. You have no right leading my people. But no. God doesn't respond in that way at all. Instead, he he simply focuses Moses' attention back onto Pharaoh. He promises to put Pharaoh in his place as well. In Exodus 6, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. In other words, the Lord is saying that he is in control, that he will not destroy Moses, but he will instead destroy Pharaoh, so that Pharaoh will let God's people will let God's people go. And then the Lord doesn't dwell on Pharaoh too long, though. Instead, after he, after he puts Pharaoh in his place, then the Lord goes on in chapter 6, verse 2 to 8, to, to explain to, to Moses of his continuing grace and compassion for his people. He assures him in, in verses 2 to 8 that he will do what he promised. His covenant with Abraham, he says there, stands firm. It remains. God's people are his people. He will claim them as his own. He will rescue them and he will care for them. And the Lord says something quite striking in chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. There he says, I am the Lord. That's Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. What exactly did the Lord mean there? Because if you go back to Genesis, you will see that the name Yahweh, the Lord, is is often used. Abraham knew of the Lord's name and called upon his name in that way. 
So what was the Lord saying here when, 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 he, when he says that he did not make his name the Lord known to them? Well, he is saying that soon enough, God's people will see the Lord in a way that, they had ne- that, that those before had never seen. They will see God's covenant faithfulness and love in a way that no generation before had ever seen it. They will soon see Yahweh redeeming his people, carrying them in his powerful arms and placing them in that beautiful land of Canaan. And that was, an imbu- that was a beautiful promise for God's people, a beautiful encouragement as they were, as they were suffering in slavery. And this was an encouragement to Moses. The Lord is speaking to Moses, but he's not just to, to keep this message into himself or for himself. Now, in verse 6, we see the Lord telling Moses that, that he has to go and tell the people all of this as well. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel. And then he goes on to explain exactly what he has said to Moses as well. Yes, Moses is to go before the people and proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the good news that God cares for them. That he has remembered their covenant, his covenant with them. That he will carry them out of exile, out of slavery. And then in, at the beginning of verse 9, we find that, that that's what Moses does. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. He proclaims the great faithfulness of God to them. And what we see here very clearly is an act of grace on the part of the Lord. He comes to his discouraged people to discourage and to an accusing leader of his people. And instead of striking them down, he showers them with grace. And this is what the Lord so often does for us as his covenant people today. Each and every Sunday. Even though at times we will blame God for our sin. Or think that in some slight way he is responsible for the mess we are in. He comes to us in mercy. Knowing that we are only dust, he has compassion on us. So he showers us with his grace. He reminds us of his very deepest and highest expression of his covenant love. The people in in the days of Moses, they would see the name of the Lord in a way that no people had seen before. But we have seen the name of the Lord in a way that even those people who were carried out of Egypt had never seen before. They had never seen that the fullest depths and expressions of God's love, of God's name. We have. We have in the person of Jesus Christ. There we see Yahweh, the Lord, in all of his faithfulness, in all of his love. Sending his son to accusing people to his enemies and giving them life. Redeeming them not just from from earthly rulers, but from death, as we heard this morning, and also from the power of the devil. Yes, in Jesus and through his death and resurrection, we see that the greatest expression of the Lord's name, of his love and faithfulness towards us. And we are assured every Sunday that in Jesus Christ, all of our sins, all of our accusations, all the times that we have followed the devil's lies, They have been forgiven, forgiven freely. And that is grace, that is amazing grace 
abundant grace. Now the message the people heard through Moses, the message we hear now is glorious. It's amazing to hear of the grace of God and his love and care. But then look at verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They did not listen. God's grace falls on deaf ears. It was like Moses was talking to a brick wall as he was proclaiming God's glorious grace to his people. They are deaf to the good news of the gospel. And again, that is exactly what Pharaoh, that is exactly what the devil wanted to achieve. He wanted the people of God to stop believing that God actually cares for them. It's something he still wants today. He wants his whispering lies to drown out the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. He wants you to come to church Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, but then leave more discouraged than ever. As the gospel is proclaimed, he wants you to focus all of your attention on your cruel bondage, your constant sufferings, your worries in this life, and then point your finger at him and say, it's your fault. The devil wants us to tune God out of our lives. Don't do it, congregation. Don't let the gospel fall on deaf ears. Fix your eyes, fix your ears on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. See and hear his victory over sin and death. It is certain, it is a reality. And then respond in faith. Know for certain that the devil, along with death, has been defeated. Be assured of God's grace, love, and care for you. But now, with the people's failure to listen, surely God will now pour out his wrath on his people. They've refused his grace, and now they, they shall see his wrath, but no. Even though God, even though they've refused his grace, they will not see his wrath. God promises deliverance, even though it, it has fallen on deaf ears. God doesn't, doesn't say, well, if you're not going to listen to me, well, then forget it. I'm going to leave all of you alone. I'll leave you in your sin, and I'm out of here. I'll find some other people who actually will listen to me. No. Look at verse 10. There, even though the people have not listened, the Lord goes to Moses and he says, Go in, not destroy my people. Go in. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. That is the kind of God you have, brothers and sisters. A God who doesn't give up on us even when we stop listening at times. Here we see that God is a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, endless chances. But at this point, even Moses is now doubtful. In verse 12, he, he tries to reason with God. He says, but Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. 
You can imagine Moses, right? The, the people, the people who, who are going to receive the, this glorious deliverance, they're not even listening to you. And you expect me to go to Pharaoh and, and expect that he's going to listen to me? Your own people won't listen to me. And besides, Moses adds, he's got uncircumcised lips. That's a similar thing that he said earlier to, to the Lord at the burning bush. When he was refusing to, to lead God's people there, he said, I am slow of tongue and speech. Now, the last time Moses made a, an excuse like that, God's anger did indeed burn against Moses. You can read about that in Exodus 3. But not here, not this time. This time the Lord again shows what? His grace. In verse 13, he talks to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites. And there he, he gives them the charge once again. He gave them the charge about the people of Israel and Pharaoh to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. As here the Lord is reminding Moses, reminding his leaders that God has not given up on his people. He will continue to, to care for them. He will continue to do his work and do what he had promised. And that was an encouragement that Moses certainly needed to hear. The encouragement to persevere in the midst of struggles when it looked like there was no way out. The Lord says, trust me. Trust me, persevere. And we need this encouragement of grace at times too. The journey of life can be difficult at times. Sin has made our lives miserable. This life is no more than a constant death. That's what we pray in the baptism form. At times we, we think the devil will be victorious, that he does indeed have the upper hand. But congregation know this. He doesn't and he won't. We can be assured of this because we know what Christ has done. The devil may have succeeded with Moses and the Israelites. He may succeed with you and I at times. But he didn't succeed when he needed to most. He didn't succeed against your Savior. Oh, he tried time and time again. The devil tried to whisper in our Savior's ear. To trip up our Savior. To get him to, to, to worship Satan instead. He did that in the desert, you remember, with the three temptations. He did it through his life. He did it especially as our Savior hung on the cross. Every time people mocked our Savior, remember what they said to him, come down from the cross and save yourself. That was a temptation of the devil. Because the devil knew that if Jesus Christ came down and saved himself, then none of us would be saved. None of us would have eternal life. And there the, the devil was saying, Jesus, just get down. It's much easier. Just serve me Life will be so much better. And besides, look at these people. You're saving the very people who have nailed you to the cross. And now they are mocking you to get down. Why not be done with them and serve me? But every time, every time the devil tried with our Savior, he failed. He could not defeat Christ. He could not convince Christ to turn away and to accuse God and point a finger at him. Instead, even on the cross, our Savior trusted in the Lord. And in so doing, then Christ, he defeated death. We saw that this morning. 
but we also see that he defeated Satan. And because we are in Christ, we have life in him, we can be sure that we too will not go down in final defeat. There is no question about that. Christ's victory is our victory. Oh, the devil will fight to the end. Oh, to be sure he will. He will attack like a roaring lion, Scripture says, but he will not succeed. He did not succeed against your Savior. And we are victorious in Christ. And one day, then all of the burdens, all of the suffering, all of the sin that we experience in this life will be wiped away along with Satan and placed in the fires of hell. And so let us not be discouraged, brothers and sisters, but instead look to Christ. See his victory and rejoice in him. He is the answer to the devil's attack and to our own dismay. He is proof positive of God's grace, that God's grace is always with us and forevermore. Amen.